Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Vicki Joy Anderson author, speaker, and researcher who graduated from the University of Northwestern in St. Paul, Minnesota with a major in Bible and a BS degree in English with a writing emphasis. She specializes in exploring the fringe and has 40 years of experience with terrifying sleep paralysis. Vicki, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Now, did I read that right? You have 40 years of sleep paralysis? Uh, you read that correctly. It started, my my the first remembrance I have, I was about three or four, but I have another memory that makes me feel like it probably went back um, a little bit further than that. But even if you start at age four, they, they went until I was about 40 and I do occasionally still have not quite sleep paralysis. And I don't know if any of your listeners are going to resonate with this, but once I kind of got rid of like the main stuff, every once in a while now I have what I call dream within a dream sleep paralysis. It's like an embedded version of it. So I don't really have sleep paralysis anymore. It stopped probably around 42 years old, but every once in a while I will have um, an experience where I'm dreaming and in the dream, I'm asleep. And the dream version of me is having sleep paralysis. And it's not as scary of an experience. Uh, And uh, it's very strange. But, you know, you you still wake up feeling like you'd had a nightmare, but it's nowhere near the intensity of the kind of classic version. It almost sounds like you're having a lucid dream of sleep paralysis. Very much so. And a lot of people with sleep paralysis, including myself, even when we're not having sleep paralysis, we do tend to be lucid dreamers as well. And so even when I'm not having a nightmare or a lucid or a sleep paralysis experience, I'm very often um, having lucid dreams where I will be aware that I'm dreaming and I will kind of um, get myself out of pickles and things like that if (laughs) if things go south. (laughs) So... What is your definition of sleep paralysis? So that's really the reason I wrote the book, because when you've experienced something for 40 years, you you do have some ideas of what's going on, and they don't always match the kind of overly simplistic clinical explanations that you find on the internet. And I really wanted to take the conversation kind of out of the horror movie, heavy metal genre and out of more of the fictional clinical uh, aspects. And I I really wanted the the experiencers to start doing the talking. Like, let's let the experiencers start shaping this narrative. Because a lot of the things that you see in the horror movies and you see in the, you know, the medical websites and things, they're really not speaking uh, to the experience. Um, And so I, I really wanted to 
kind of my my desire was twofold. I wanted to take the narrative kind of out of the speculative and into more of an intellectually honest discussion. And I wanted to create an atmosphere for people who have experienced this where we're allowed to talk about it without being deemed crazy or silly or just attention seeking or like we've all got drug addiction problems or something like that. Like there's all of these this there's many layers of gaslighting that go on with sleep paralysis. And it seems like live in a very paranormal savvy culture now there's a lot of shows on it there's a lot of interest there's been a lot of education and knowledge there's a lot of open-minded people and even like with gaia.com we're talking openly now about akashic records and astral projection and atlantean societies and so uh, it seems to me that it, it's only fair that the people, um, if you know, if people who've seen UFOs can can talk now on Fox News and be taken seriously, then people with sleep paralysis should be able to talk about their experience without being poo-pooed and told it's just narcolepsy and you're sleeping on your back and don't eat spaghetti before you go to bed, that sort of thing. <laughs> Do you think that, you know, the medical community is starting to take it seriously or not yet? I think that they're taking all of the physiological aspects of it seriously. And this is where I think I kind of part company. You know, I was raised in the church and I do write the book through a biblical lens, but where where I part company is I'm not one of these people that says every single thing is it's a demon, it's a demon, it's a demon. Like I there's the the world is way more complicated than that. And there are aspects of sleep paralysis that are physiological. And if you study, you know, your brain and melatonin levels and you study phases of sleep and REM cycles and the alternate states of consciousness that we go in and out of when we sleep, there's 100% absolutely physiological aspects to this. There are physiological pieces that have to be in place for a sleep paralysis incident to occur. And so I don't deny the science in that. And in fact, I think the science plays beautifully into it. And then I go into depth in my, in my book about those aspects. And I even talk about how a lot of those physiological things can be replicated wittingly or unwittingly. For example, there is a a medication that uh, you get before. So if you're going to be intubated, you know, a tube is going to be put down your throat. They want to give you a muscle relaxer, but before they give you a muscle relaxer, they give you something. And I got to say this slowly because I always botch it when I say it out loud. Succinicoline. It's called sucks for short. You'll get a you'll get a dose of succinicoline before they give you these muscle inhibitors because if if you if you don't get the sedative, I, I might be getting that backwards. You have to have a sedative before you get the succinicoline because if you get a shot of succinicoline without first being sedated, all of the side effects of succinicoline mimics a sleep paralysis experience, you'll feel like you can't move, like you can't breathe. And there's people then like a terror takes over and then people feel this ominous feeling like they're going to die or they're going to have a heart attack. And so if you just study from a physiological aspect, the side effects of succinicoline, anyone with sleep paralysis will recognize, oh my goodness, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's also been uh, experiments in, in labs with brain probing 
where there's certain areas of the brain where if they're probed or if pressure is put onto them, uh, people will report seeing shadow people in the room. And so I I don't deny the physiological aspects. Our brain, it, if you look at everything that we know about the brain and we know about dreams, there is still a lot of speculation there. There's a lot we don't know. And so I I don't write any of that off. And I, I try in my book to include all tentacles in this conversation. So I look into things that are philosophical. I look into uh, the new age. I look into Gnostic and extra biblical texts like the book of Enoch. I look into literature. I got a lot in there about HP Lovecraft. And because a lot of people who wrote literature, they were astral projecting and they were like putting those dream sendings into their, their, their work. So there's hints as to things that were going on. But what I find to, to finally get around to answering your question, Jeff, I, I think that where the medical community is uh, not being generous enough is they want to simply and only write it off as something medical. It's it's a narcolepsy. It has something to do with uh, uh, psychotropic medication that you might might be on. It has to do with stress, and so they have all of these like psychological and physiological uh, explanations for it, but. And I understand this because the medical field, they aren't theologians. They're not there to preach the gospel. So I understand where they want to leave that out. But it's one thing if they just leave the spiritual aspects of sleep paralysis out of the discussion, but they don't just leave it out. They go further and they almost mock and poo-poo anyone who believes that there might be something spiritual going on. And this is actually an area, one of those rare areas where practitioners of witchcraft the occult, new age, and Christianity will all agree. There's a point of agreement. We all believe that there is an astral plane and that there are ways to access it and that there are beings up there that aren't human and that there's communication methods with them. Now, where these groups will splinter off in their disagreement is whether or not you should be up there, whether or not it's beneficial, whether or not those people that you're interacting with up there are there our friend or foe, like at that point, there's disagreement. But the fact is that the medical community is trying to deny and cover up an aspect of spirituality that a lot of people who don't even consider themselves spiritual and who wouldn't consider themselves Christian by any means, absolutely believe in the reality of the astral plane and spiritual entities and believe that these things coming into their room uh, are of a spiritual realm and of our another dimension. So when you have these experiences and they are frightening and they're confusing and you try to wonder what are these things and why do they know who I am and why are they coming to me? When you're trying to wrestle through those deep spiritual aspects of this and you go online for help from highly educated people and all they're telling you is that you're imagining these things or people think they see things and they call them hallucinations and a lot of experiencers are trying to get away from that word hallucination because if you actually look up the dictionary definition of a hallucination it's imagining something that's not there and so even in that word hallucination the people that are experiencing this are being gaslit you're they're being told this is a uh, a visualization of your inner child, or this is um, this is a hallucination because you were drunk when you went to bed, or you're on psychotropic medication, or your melatonin levels are off. And there's all of these 
explanations and I understand even as an experiencer why a lot of those explanations can be comforting uh, because when when the, when this is happening to you, it's very scary. And to wake up the next day and contemplate that like, okay, maybe I got to get off this medication or, hey, maybe I should stop drinking. That's way easier of something. That's easier to contemplate that what if there was an actual entity of some kind in my room? What if that was real? And what if that thing was nefarious? What if that thing is my loving grandmother? What if it actually wasn't? What if that was nefarious? And so I I think part of the gaslighting is simply just to keep the public out of the terror zone. You know what I mean? Let's, let's calm everybody down, settle down. It, you know, um, it's just a weather balloon, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. You mentioned that you wrote the book through a biblical lens. Correct. Is there any type of sighting of sleep paralysis? Obviously not in that name within the Bible. That is a great question. I I'm, I, I can't believe you asked that. That's so awesome. Um, the most obvious sighting is in the book of Job, but a lot of Christians take it out of context. And I'll tell you how they do that. There is um, a verse in Job, and it's and it's in it's in my book. In fact, I'll if it if it doesn't distract us here from the discussion, I think it's one of one of the intros to the very first chapter. So I think mm-hmm. it'll be easy for me to find. No problem. <clears throat> but it's in the book of Job, and Job, of course, is the guy who here it is. <clears throat> Job is the guy where he basically lost almost everything in a day. All of his kids died and all of his cattle and he got sick and he was scratching his wounds with pot shards and three friends came to visit him. And for three days they sat with him and they mourned with him. And then all, then they decided to to give him counsel. And they were just basically saying, this happened to you because you're a sinner and you should repent before God. And um, clearly none of this would have happened to you if you weren't a terrible person. And Job is kind of defending his honor. And um, so that's the context of the book. So a lot of people think that the sleep paralysis verse is Job talking about on top of all of these other tragedies that he's experiencing, he's also now being tormented in the night and he's having sleep paralysis. I'll just read the verse here. Job 4, 13 through 16. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, Dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, meaning the the spirit. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. So, what a lot of people don't understand is that's not Job. In in context, it's Eliphaz, one of his friends, one of these guys who's giving him counsel, bad counsel, come to find out at the end. Um, at the end of the chapter, uh, God vindicates Job and says, this is not because of your sin at all. And the counsel of your friends was wrong. And in fact, then Job had to offer a sacrifice on behalf of his friends to forgive them for all of these these silly words that that they spoke in in jest. And so what what's interesting is Eliphaz is the one that had that sleep paralysis experience and the chapter goes on to the spirit came to me at night and he gave me all of this wisdom and now I'm passing this wisdom on to you. This is what's happening to you Job. 
And what's interesting about it is we find out at the end of the chapter that all these men gave bad advice. They gave bad counsel. So this spirit that came to Eliphaz and, and gave him counsel in the night uh, gave him poor counsel. And in fact, it was counsel that that angered God to a degree. And so this is where I think we all be careful when we start talking about lower versus higher vibrational beings and some of the things in the astral are our friends and they want to help us and some of them up there are actually in awe of us and they want to get to know us and and uh, you know um figure out humanity and they have been in a great interest in us and um where where when you take it through the biblical lens Again, we have to be very careful because there are visitations from the third heaven all over scripture. We have angels coming down and speaking with man, they're messengers. And so we have angels talking to Mary saying she will give birth unto a son. And we have two angels appearing to Abraham saying that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and your your, your nephew Lot lives there. Um, we have angels appearing to the mother and father of Samson to say that Sam, they're going to give birth to Samson and angels appearing to the shepherds um, who are abiding by their flocks by night that the, the Savior has been born. So we have many, many examples in scripture where uh, spirit beings have come down. Now, in this case, they're coming down from the third heaven, the throne room. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I don't sure. understand what is the third heaven. So <clears throat> this is this is just language that has been adopted by humans and theologians to understand the distinctions. There's technically three different uses of the word heaven in scripture. When we look at the sky and we see the stars and the sun and the moon, or we see the clouds, you know, we, we call it the sky, but we can also, we call it the heavens, you know, like the heavenly bodies. And so it's just the, the word for the, the atmosphere that we see here on earth, our sky. Um, but then there is a heaven that's mentioned in Corinthians by the apostle Paul. And he says, I, I know a man who went the third heaven or went to the heavens. And in some of this, you have to look up the Greek and, and go into the deeper meanings, but he goes into the throne room and we know that he's seeing the throne room and uh, John in revelation. Also the heavens were opened up and he saw the throne of God. And so <laughs> this is differentiated from the heavenly places that we hear about in Ephesians six twelve. in Ephesians six 12, we're told the battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, we're down here on earth and Christians and atheists are fighting and men and women are fighting, you know, and gay and straight are fighting and Republican and Democrat are fighting. We're all being taught, quite frankly, to turn on each other and and, and fight over all these, you know, superfluous things. But what, what Ephesians 6.12 is telling us is the real war isn't down here horizontally between one another. We have a war going on vertically between heaven and earth. And that's those are really the enemies you need to be looking at. Those are really who you should be focusing on because they really do have nefarious purposes. And so in, in Ephesians 6.12, it says, for the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of evil and um, uh, rulers in um, in the dark places. And there, there's four like categories that it gives. And depending on what translation, some say rulers, some say authorities, some say archons, some say, you know, kings, you know, whatever. 
if you do a Greek study on that phrase, heavenly places, it's very specific that it's not talking about the sky with the, the sun and the moon, and it's not talking about the throne room of God. And and hopefully it's not talking about the throne room of God, because this is where, you know, these are where forces of evil and darkness dwell. So if the throne room of God is filled with all of those evil, nefarious, demonic type of entities, then now we have to call into question, who is this God? And why is his, why is his throne room filled with these evil people? So there's a distinction in the scriptures. They might not use the, the words first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. But if you go into the Greek and the Hebrew, it's differentiating that the English has three words for heaven. And in the Semitic mindset and of the writers of scripture, there's three different definitions of that word heavens. There's The word heaven never appears in scripture. It's always plural. It's always heavens. And you have to look contextually at each passage to determine Semitically which heavens they were referring to. So the third heaven is what people may be calling the astral world or the astral plane. The the second heaven, the heavenly places of Ephesians 6.12 is the astral plane. And, and this is where it gets confusing because a lot of people, um, and I'm talking Christians, like God-fearing people will come to church on Sunday and they'll talk about how... <gasps> I had this dream and I I saw Jesus and and they absolutely believe it is this encounter in the third heaven with the throne room of God and I I believe that that can happen Jeff like I don't think it is an everyday occurrence I don't think that it's an everyday thing and I don't think in any ordinary person is just brought up into the throne room of heaven to to see the to the throne room of God and in scripture when we see the people that saw visions of that when we see Moses and Paul and John they had specific purposes in redemptive history they saw that information for the purpose of documenting it for the purpose of clarification, for the purpose of the glory of God, and for the explanation and the unfolding of redemptive history. And so the the biggest difference between third heaven uh, encounters and second heaven encounters is third heaven encounters are for the revelation of God and who he is and what his plan is and his interaction with mankind. It's really a God-centered sort of an encounter. Whereas when you have second heaven encounters, then the gods in that realm, they shift and it's all self-actualization, your purpose. You can be the God. And so you you have the difference in focus, not only in location, but in focus. You've got God, a God in the third heaven who reveals himself and then you've got gods, lowercase g's, in the second heaven uh, that are powerful. I believe that they're all created beings, but they are powerful. In fact, Psalm 82 even calls them gods. Um, there are Christians that say there's only one God. We're, we're monotheistic. There's only one God, capital G. And if you do a word study in, in the Hebrew on the word Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God, it is not the same understanding as a modern, born-again Christian American living in the 21st century. Our definition, as we've been taught, is there's a God, capital G, and there's only one of them. And anyone else that calls himself G, a G is a demon or it's some imposter. And what's really interesting in Psalm 82, God is addressing these fallen beings. 
And he's calling them gods, lowercase g's. He's not calling them angels. He's not calling them Nephilim. He's not calling them watchers. He's he's specifically calling them gods, lowercase g. And, and he says um, that to these gods that because of the corruption that they've that they've wrought on the earth, they will die like men. In other words, your eternality, you know, that you had as a spiritual being will be stripped of you. And like men, you will, you know, like Adam, Adam rebelled and death was entered his body. These fallen ones also rebelled and death will eventually enter their bodies as well, though their lifespan is, you know, greater than ours. And so Elohim in Hebrew, it it means any member of the spiritual realm. And so there's like seven different categories of what an Elohim can be in Semitic thinking. And I don't think I'm going to remember all seven of them. If anyone's interested in this topic, you can read Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. He goes into Psalm 82 and he really describes the Elohim. It's for any Christian who's sat in a pew their whole life and just eaten up the sermons and just, you know, memorized the rote, uh, the unseen realm will blow your mind. You're, you will never read the Bible the same way again. So the Elohim is the same way, you know, Jeff, you and I would say that we're human beings. And that means that we're, you know, citizens of this earthly realm. And so uh, now I can say that I'm a human being and so was the Queen of England. We're both human beings. But to say that we had the same rank would be ridiculous. She had this royal order. I'm just a nobody who writes books, right? So um, Elohim is the spiritual realm version of the categorizing the, the genus of what lives there. So humans live on earth. Elohims live in the spirit realm. And so that doesn't mean that those Elohims all have the same status as the God who created the world. But this idea that there's only one God means that there's no other gods is really more of an American, I think, ignorance of the actual word Elohim. There are other gods. Um, and to just call everything an angel and a demon is too simplistic. Um, I'll give you the the theological definition of a demon. And you're not going to hear this in church. You're probably not going to learn this in seminary. Maybe you will. Um, uh, the, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Enoch 1, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and a litany of Jewish literature all define a demon the same way. It is the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. They were the giants. They were the demigods. So in the Book of Enoch, there's a little hint of it in Genesis 6. It doesn't say too much about it. 200 of these watchers, and these watchers are, they're bigger than angels. Angels are just messengers. Angels work in the mailroom. And there's ranks of angels too. Gabriel is, you know, a, a big guy and so is Michael. But the angelos in the Greek, the angels are messengers. They carry messages between heaven and earth. The watchers were some much different. The watchers were actually liaisons spiritual liaisons that lived on earth and noah and his forefathers communicated with these watchers they saw them and the watchers helped them they gave them counsel and they taught them about the earth and they were our friends but what happened at some point is these watchers 200 of these watchers went 
rogue. And they came down to earth and they intermarried with the women and they gave birth to these demigods, half watcher, half human beings. They were the giants. They were the Nephilim. So when the flood came and wiped everybody out, the Nephilim, their bodies died. The human parts of them died. But the parts of them that were eternal because their fathers were angelic or were watchers, the the disembodied spirits of these giants uh, remained on the earth and remain on the earth to this day because they are, until judgment, eternal beings. And so <clears throat> that's what a demon is. And so that's why I kind of poo-poo this, you know, I, I'm always kind of chastising Christians that every single time there's a haunting or every single time there's an apparition or a shadow man or anytime someone goes into the astral realm and talks to um, a uh, uh, an ascended master or a spirit guide, you can't call every single thing a demon. It's just not accurate. And so um, uh, the Elohim kind of to, to wrap that up, the Elohim is anything any being that lives and dwells in the spiritual realm or the spiritual dimension, whether it's the second heaven, whether it's the third heaven. And in fact, it can even be Sheol. If you've died and you've separated from your body in death and you are now in this holding tank, you know, uh, some people believe you're in heaven. Some people believe you're in Sheol. Depends if you're going from a Christian or a more of a Judaic understanding of where you go when you die. Wherever you go, once you're dead, you become an Elohim. Now, this doesn't mean you become a god in the sense that we Americans believe it. It simply means we've transferred our citizenship at that point from earthly beings to living in the spiritual realm. What kind of entities, if any, did you see during your sleep paralysis? Well, it's so interesting that you would say that, Jeff, because I was kind of one of the lucky ones. Um, I never saw anything all growing up. Um, pretty much it wasn't until I was 40 that I started seeing things. And I was look back on that and go, well, thank God, because it was already such a terrifying experience that if on top of that, I had been seeing actual, and oh my goodness. <laughs> oh man. So, but what's interesting is even those of us that don't see anything, we a hundred percent know there's something in our room. And we can tell you if it has a male or a female energy. And this is another place where I kind of maybe stray from the norm. Like when we talk about the incubus and the succubus spirits, they, those are kind of like the rape demons. Then they say that the incubus is a, a male and the succubus is a female. I, I think more accurately, these things are probably more hermaphroditic. I think that that these entities give off male and female energies. It was, you know, we get something in our room and we definitely get this sense. So even if we don't see it, we can say if it has like more of a male or a female energy to it, we can usually tell if there's more than one thing in our room and we can usually tell where in the room it is and, and as it's moving where it is in the room. So what, what happened was uh, I had a long bout where it kind of went away and I had a lot going on in my life when I turned 40. My mom died of cancer. I was living thousands of miles away from my family. I was sort of isolated. I had a really stressful job. And I, I had some other things going on in my life that was just creating a lot of stress, a lot of grief. And so I, I do think that I don't think that stress and grief necessarily causes or brings on sleep paralysis. But if you're already prone to sleep paralysis, and you're in a season of deep grief or stress or chaos, you're definitely more susceptible to it. 
So I, I was very susceptible at 40 to, to this and it came back. And at this point I started seeing things, um, that were just very bizarre, Jeff. Uh, at one point, um, I was, you know, it was the classic, like where you see something moving under your bed and, um, you know, because I grew up in the church, whenever this stuff happens, I'll say like, in the name of Jesus, get out. You have no authority here. And then when when that happened, the part in the bed that had depressed, it looked like an entire body was like sliding out from underneath the covers, like there had been something under there. And um, one time I saw a literal fireball in the middle of my room. It was about five feet off the ground in the middle of the room. And that one perplexed me for a very long time. And I Googled the heck out of it trying to find, please let me just find one other person who said something like this so I don't feel crazy. And um, it took me many, many years, but I have since heard now three or four other people talk about these fireballs that kind of appear in the middle of the room and they like, they roll, they almost look like the Donkey Kong barrels, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But interestingly, the other night I was telling you before the show that I was having one of those dream within a dream kind of lucid embedded sleep paralysis experiences. And this was probably the first time, Jeff, where they ever actually manifested where I could see them. And what was spooky is in the dream, um, the bedroom that I was in, in the dream, it mimicked exactly to a T my bedroom. So it, it, it was my ceiling and, you know, it, it was my, my room and in the dream, I'm asleep dreaming. And so it's almost like I'm watching this happen to myself. And I opened my eyes and I saw an entity that was as, it was hanging in midair about three feet off, off the, the bed. So it was just hovering right over me. And it was a shadow man. And then I closed my eyes because I was scared. And then I opened it again. And then another one appeared. So I'm like, I'm not closing my eyes again, because every time I open them, another one's going to appear. But they were shadow people. And they were as long as the room, they were as big as the room, and they were hovering over me. But what's this is hard to explain, because they were shadows. But they took on the shadows of they almost had like a steampunk look to them they didn't look like the classic kind of like ghoul or you know flowing robe grim reaper kind of a shadow man and even though it was just in shadow i could see the shoulders were almost like 90 degree angles like almost like they were made out of like lead pipes and they had helmets on that covered their whole face because i could see the groove in the middle of where the helmet came together and so it was very strange and this is something i just want to mention because you know, I've been collecting case studies for years and I've done a lot of interviews and there's my, the entire appendix in my book is all people's stories uh, and experiences. And what I found is people that tell their stories like from the seventies and the eighties, it's the classic old hag syndrome. And it's the old woman in a rocking chair and it's the shadow man and the hat man and the the little demons with red eyes and the little gray people. And what I'm finding now with this new generation, with people that have had sleep paralysis in like the 90s and in now the 2000s, the the apparitions and the sleep paralysis experiences are taking on more of a technological appearance. And people, instead of beings and entities, are are describing seeing blinking 
lights and uh, visualizations that are like screensavers, like in front of them. And I'm hearing people talking about opening their eyes and seeing their entire bedroom, but the whole bedroom is made out of fiber optics. And I, a lot of them describe lights and they very often specifically talk about red and green lights. And I've been researching in that because I know that in the occult colors have very specific meanings and green is the color of the astral realm. And, um, uh, I could go in a million directions with that, but I don't want to get too far off topic. But so anyway, um, a lot of the people now are explaining, I, I just had a friend yesterday tell me the same night I had my kind of steampunk shadow men dream. A friend of mine said I had a dream taking a nap Sunday afternoon. And when I, when I woke up in this dream, there were cyborgs in my room and they had these little bags they, like these little and they were opening up the bags and they were taking out these like mechanical spiders now he didn't use the word nanobots but it's he, he said they were like mechanical spiders and the room kept filling up with these cyborgs and they were just they were opening up these little bags and just stacking up these little nanobots next to him on the bed and then he woke up and it is just fascinating to me that the more I mention this and the more I talk about it, the more emails I get and the more people say, you know, I've never wanted to talk about my experience because everybody's always talking about shadow people and getting raped by incubuses and little green men. And mine are all of these weird, like technological looking spiders. And like now people are privy. So now people are using things like now people are saying nanobots but before we knew what that was people were writing to me and saying i'm seeing these spiders but it's like they're electronic it's like they're they're like robot spiders and because we didn't have a word for it at that point you know and so it, it's interesting to me to see the um metamorphose uh the the um the evolution i guess i'm trying to say of even these uh spiritual experiences that people are having and I really think it plays credence into the fact that this is more than just narcolepsy, because in the past, everybody was reporting all over the world these same visualizations. And this was before the Internet, where people had the hive mind and they could go on and read someone else's experience and just mimic it. But now, without any sort of announcement uh, the trend is changing and people are seeing different things. And there was never any sort of announcement on Facebook that, hey, sleep paralysis experiencers, you got to start seeing nanobots and lights now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So just some interesting um, factoids. So I, I will just say that most of the visualizations that I have seen during my sleep paralysis, it's been like screensavers and steampunk looking kind of shadow men and lights and uh, I, I have seen the hat man twice in my life, but interesting, um, both times I saw the hat man, it was when I woke up from a sleep paralysis experience and I was afraid and I was either walking to the bathroom or going to another room or whatever. And so I was wide awake at that point and I saw the shadow man like in the moonlight in, in a room. So I, I did see the hat man fully awake. And I found that that experience too. a lot of people that see the hat man, they're not necessarily seeing him during sleep paralysis. A lot of them are seeing him in not necessarily broad daylight, but seeing him when they're fully awake. Aren't there some people that can control their fear 
during sleep paralysis and actually go out and astral travel and communicate with beings. Absolutely. Yep. And I talk about that a lot in my book. And so, yeah, there are people, because again, there's, there's different camps and I, I kind of, um, over categorize, you know, this is like an over categorization, but what I find is there's a lot of people that are seeking this. And a lot of times the sleep paralysis people are the ones not really seeking it. They're the ones sort of being, um, this is where you get into the crossover between, uh, the alien experiencers, the UFO experiencers, because I, I do believe that the sleep paralysis is an, an abduction scenario and we can talk about that, but to answer your question, yes, uh, there are a lot of people who, whether through sleep paralysis or meditation, altered states of consciousness, you can do it through binaural beats. You can do it through uh, um, psychedelic drugs of certain kinds. There are many ways to trigger a out-of-body experience. And many people do this intentionally. And they do go to the astral realm and they do walk around and and communicate. and. So my my book talks a lot about out of body experiences and the astral realm and what exactly that is and whether or not we should maybe be up there or not. But specifically, the reason why sleep paralysis is so disturbing is it's a lot of people being dragged up into the astral realm who really don't want to be there. They find it very off putting and it might go against their religious beliefs or or whatever. And and when 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 we talk about these things i mean i'm just my brain is going in a million different directions right now as to where to go and i don't want to get too far off topic but um but absolutely there is a a, de- a direct link between sleep paralysis and astral projection uh, sleep paralysis is sort of the uh the bus stop so to speak um where you kind of pick up the the astral uber to get there and i i'm surprised at how many people when i've said that have not known that there was any link whatsoever between the two. So um, my book does go on to, to kind of explain that, but, um, but yeah, yeah. To, to, to answer, answer your question. Um, there are many websites even where new agers are training people how to astral project. And many of them will say, if you do it through sleep paralysis, you've got to learn to overcome that fear and work through that fear um, because that, uh, sleep paralysis is the vehicle by which you need to kind of, you have to pass through it, you know, like no pain, no gain. They say like, uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and you, um, you're walking home from a friend's house late at night and there's that one patch of woods that freaks you out. And it's like, you, you got to just get through that patch of woods, but then you're, then you're home free. And so that's kind of the way that it's described on these sites. And so, um, the, uh, the the new agers they they don't try to hide it they'll say sleep paralysis is a perfect opportunity to 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 astral project and i have quotes um um of that of that nature in the book now you mentioned ets do you think it's possible that ets are putting humans into sleep paralysis and then as you said earlier dragging them up into the astral and if so what for yeah so i do think that there is a there's a definite link between alien experience, like alien abduction experiences and sleep paralysis abduction experiences. I don't necessarily think it's the same entities involved or it's the same modus operandi. I think that the, you know, a lot of the 
uh, UFO abduction experiencers, they talk about labs and medical tables and medical equipment and experimentation. And whereas a lot of sleep paralysis people, they don't talk about that. They talk more about uh, traversing the astral realm and speaking with spirit guides and ascended masters and being taught knowledge. And so uh, it seems like sleep paralysis is more of we are we're looking for scholars. We're looking for missionaries to teach and preach our our religion. And, and so uh, that sleep paralysis is more of like going to a classroom, whereas the ET type stuff seems to be more of like we're using you more for experimentation. And like, so I think there's different, they're using people for different reasons. Now, um, some of the similar, some of the differences rather between uh, the sleep paralysis UFO versus astral. Because a lot of people will be telling me, they'll say, I want to tell you my sleep paralysis experience. And they'll start talking. And right away, I'll say, this is way more of a UFO abduction uh, scenario. And they're always surprised because a lot of times we hear UFO abduction stories and it's they're out in a cornfield. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're, it's broad daylight. They're wide awake. Um, but there are UFO abduction experiences that happen during sleep paralysis, but they are still the UFO experience. And the difference between the sleep paralysis abduction and the UFO abduction at night in that altered state of consciousness in your bed, primarily, this is this is just broad strokes of the brush here. Obviously, there are things that fall out of this, but for the most part, sleep paralysis people will talk about the room being dark and the entities being darker than dark where they they can't see the entity but they know it's there because there's a part in the darkness that's even darker and so there's darkness is associated with sleep paralysis and a lot of people will talk about this entity showing up at their door the it's standing and it's hovering at the bedroom door whereas the ufo version they'll wake up and it'll be a bright light coming through the window so now we've got light versus darkness and we've got window versus door and believe it or not i've got an entire chapter in the book uh called um threshold covenants and astral vampires and the entire chapter focuses on why these sleep paralysis entities often hover at the bedroom door and how this plays into ancient threshold covenants that used to be mainstream up until about the 1800s. And this is a way that you would covenant with the gods or the deities of your home. The hearthstone would, would be often at the threshold of your home, and that's where the family altar would be, and that's where the fire would be, and that's where worship would be done, and that's where sacrifices to the to the deity of the home would be made. And so the threshold was where you invited your God um, to come and protect your family. And this plays into modern vampire lore, just like a glove, because we have the whole, you, a vampire can't come into your house unless you invite it. And, you know, we always see the horror movies where the, the black boot is crossing over the threshold and the music swells because now he's been invited in. And, and these vampiric covenants that we've just been told are fictional. According to the fictional vampire lore, if you covenant with a vampire, there's only two ways basically to get out of that you he can get you and you can die and when you die you're you're off the hook right the only other way to get out of an astral covenant with a with a or, or a vampiric covenant when you invite a vampire into your home the only way to get out of that and with your life 
is that if the ownership of your home changes hands, if the deed of the house goes to a new owner, uh, they no longer have access to that house. They have to regain an invitation. And this plays it, this plays so deeply into, I think, what has become a very, very oversimplified gospel being tre- being taught by Christianity, and why, um, like, and like I said, no disrespect, I was raised in the church, and but where I think that it's becoming simplistic, I think that the 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 Bible is is a guidebook to the supernatural. You will not find a more paranormal you know, book in the entire universe. I mean, there's, it, 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 it just laid the groundwork for, for <laughs> supernatural experiences. And so um, nowadays Christians talk very simplistically about all you have to do is invite Jesus into your heart and everything's great. You know, the end, end of story, you're good. And it, it's something, you know, you're taught in Sunday school, invite Jesus into your heart, you know, and basically What's behind all that, if you strip kind of the sophomoricness away from it, um, there's a verse in Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door. Here we have the doorway imagery, the altar of where you uh, pledge allegiance to your deity. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and answers the door and lets me in, that's invitation. That's a spiritual being coming to your threshold and seeking an invitation and he will not come into your home it doesn't say if if you don't answer the door i'll barge in it says if anyone answers the door and lets me in then i will eat with him and he with me and so basically we're being given uh from the other side of things this vampiric code in 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 other words it's not a vampiric code at all it is an Elohimic code. You know, we talked earlier about anything that lives in the spiritual realm, good or bad, is 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 an Elohim. It's a spirit. And so uh, when these spirits come to the thresholds of our house or to our bedrooms and they knock on the door, they're looking for an invitation of some kind. It cannot come in unless we grant it that invitation. And so, and and furthermore, it's interesting that in the Revelation verse, when it says that Jesus, when he comes in, it says that he'll dine with us, he'll eat with us. And what's interesting is that's also covenant language, because uh, in in Semitic cultures and in ancient times, like like I said, up until about the early uh, to mid 1800s, this was still practiced all over the world. They would have salt covenants, and the carrier of the salt was usually bread. So they would they would if you broke bread with someone, you were covenanting with them, and you were entering into a covenant of um, I will never hurt you, I won't make war with you, I won't bring harm to your family. You will be as a son to me, and if you broke that salt covenant, you in in ancient cultures a lot of those people they they would be um cut off from their families or they would commit suicide and shame because it, this is where we get the the phrase a man's not worth his salt he broke bread with someone he made a covenant that he would do no harm and then he did and so his name was now no longer worth anything so when christ crosses over the proverbial threshold of our hearts cuz this is now the new temple you know according to the new testament when he dines with us, what that means is he's breaking bread with us. He's making a covenant. I will never do you harm. I will take care of you. I'll protect you. You will be as a son or a daughter to me. And um, one of the cool um, 
examples we see of this played out as well is um, the the Last Supper, you know, the, the communion uh, verse in scripture, Jesus is with all of his disciples and he's breaking bread. He's he's eating bread and we know that he's dipping the bread in a dish and um, sharing it with his disciples so that they're, they're partaking in a bread and salt covenant. And what Jesus is basically doing there is pledging, um, I will take care of all of you. Um, I'm in covenant with you when I come back. I'm going to, you know, come back for you. And they were also pledging allegiance. I'm going to, I will, I will die for you, Jesus. And and most of those disciples did die for him. I think all of them were martyred. Um, Judas committed suicide and John lived a full life, but the other 10 all gave their lives. They kept that, that bread covenant. But what's interesting is in the famous painting of the Last Supper, Judas is the one with holding the uh, the money bag. You can see him at the table holding on to the coins. But if you look closer, a little further up his forearm, there is a jar of salt that's been tipped over and there's salt tipped on the table. And that is a symbol that after he bred with Jesus, he went out and betrayed him. He broke that salt covenant. And so the a lot of these entities that are coming into our room to, to take it back to the the aliens and the, the the demons and the shadow people and and all that they're coming to the window and they're coming to the door because these are thresholds and they can not come in unless there's an invitation now there's more than one way to invite them over um you can say hey come on in doors open but there's other ways that we invite these things in it can be through fear Robert Monroe went um, into depth about louche and how energy draws these things. And it doesn't, it doesn't just have to be fear. It can be rage, it can be anger, and it can also be of, of the erotic level, which is why a lot of these encounters are erotic, because that is a huge human energy draw. And that is an invitation. If that once all that emotion is being kicked up in us and all energy, whether it's fear, terror, or eroticism, it's like a magnet. That is a form of invitation. And so, um, I, I like I said, I go into great depth about this in the book in chapter four, and so I won't belabor it, but, the, but basically they're looking for an invitation and they're coming to the doors and they're coming to the windows. And I think that uh, the the modus operandi is a little bit different with the, with the alien greys they are actually looking for uh you know bodies they're they're looking for experimentation and there's all sorts of theories out there as to what they're looking for what they're doing and a lot of them get crazy um i'm kind of at the point where you know when this kind of stuff happens to you for 40 years nothing sounds crazy anymore <laughs> um but what i'm finding with the more i study the astral versions is um, if you study a lot of the people that spent a great amount of time in the astral realm, the Alice Baileys, the Helena Blavatsky's, <clears throat> the H.P. Lovecrafts, the, um, I'm not going to think of his name now, um, Baum, Frank Baum, who wrote the Oz series, the Wizard of Oz series. If you, if you look at a lot of the people that spend a lot of time in the astral realm, they become missionaries and prophets of sorts. They, they have, uh, they they become preachers and um they they come back definitely with a message and they're gleaning that knowledge and that information from the astral realm and what i always warn people is uh there there's a verse in first john but it's also on all over new age websites 
be careful when you're in the astral realm. This is what the new agers tell you. There's lower vibrational beings up there that will disguise themselves as higher vibrational beings. Well, the Bible says the same thing, but he they say there's wolves in sheep's clothing. Be careful for the wolves in sheep's clothing. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Test spirits to see whether they're lower or higher vibrational. And so um, what, what I also warn people is, is you can't use your emotion or your feelings as a litmus test for whether or not something is friend or foe. And the reason I say this is because a lot of people come back from the astral realm having gleaned a lot of um, bad information from nefarious things. But what do they tell you? They say, I, I, I saw this bright light and it was beautiful and I, I was filled with love and peace and I've never felt this way before and they're they're basically describing almost like an all over orgasm and there is a verse in scripture that says that uh Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and another interesting thing and this is kind of similar to Elohim a lot of people think Satan's this one guy Satan is just the Hebrew word for adversary so hasatan which is is the hebraic way of saying it hasatan just means the adversary and I am of the persuasion that there are many, many, many adversaries. Now, there might be a few really bad guys up on the top of the chain, like, you know, given orders that um, are really getting a lot of work done. But there are a lot of Hasatans. There are a lot of adversaries. And we know from scripture that they can disguise themselves as angels of light. So if the only thing we're going by is an angel came to me, it was really bright and I felt great. Uh, we need more. Um, we need more of a testing process, because on the flip side, we see examples in Scripture where angels came down from heaven bearing glad tidings. You're going to give birth. You know, Jesus is in Bethlehem. Go and take a look at him. And more often than not, the first thing out of an angel's mouth, and these are you know these are the good guys. These are the guys coming down from heaven. Um, usually, the first thing out of their mouth when a human encounters them is fear not they're they're terrified and and so we can't use terror or or um euf euphoria simply and only as a way to determine whether or not what we're rubbing shoulders with is is our friend or our foe so how do we test them as well as how do we test the information they give us whether it's good or not yeah that's a great question this is going to be one of those questions that's going to be, you know, answered differently depending upon your worldview. Because if you, obviously, if if I go to someone who's practicing the occult and when they say God, they mean Lucifer, you know, they, they, they are worshiping Lucifer. They believe that Lucifer was the one that saved Adam and Eve in the garden from this, you know, blind idiot God as H.P. Lovecraft referred to him. And so um, it, it's all relative depending on what you think is good and what you think is true now the the biblical response um by way of truth that that would be defined biblically the the way to test the spirits to know whether they are from god is i i take people to galatians chapter one where paul admonished the galatians and the the galatians were they were the gauls they were the ancient celtic people they were probably druids really they probably were were occultic druid type of people and you know, christians always get these like they read corinthians and galatians and they think that paul is just talking to these like people sitting in the pews of a baptist church right but no paul was 
Paul was sharing the gospel with um, ancient pagan nations that practiced, you know, pagan idolatry and, you know, were practicing worshiping Moloch and child sacrifice and druidism and like he was like talking to some hardcore people here you know it was a hard sell this this Jesus Christ guy was a hard sell for these guys right so um biblically speaking in Galatians 1 Paul tells the Gauls if anyone comes to you and gives you a message other than the one that we've given you I don't even care if it's an angel from heaven. It legitimately says that even if it's an angel from heaven, it's anathema. It let that person be cursed. And and so the litmus test biblically is if you hear something that doesn't fall in line with what we've been taught, you know, in the scriptures. But even that's tough, Jeff, because Understanding the scriptures is a lifelong process. And if all we do is go to church and listen to a little 25 minute sermon every Sunday, and we're sitting there the whole time thinking about, you know, what we're going to do for lunch, if we're not, we are not going to understand the deeper truths of scripture with a light reading. If all we're doing is, you know, reading a little, you know, three paragraph devotional as we're running off to work, that, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not making a distinction here between people who are saved and not saved, going to heaven, not going to heaven. What I'm making a distinction here is in in the realms of trying to decipher what on this planet is good and evil is an extremely important question that a lot of people gloss over, including Christians. They kind of just think Jesus is going to take care of everything. Hey, I go to church and I don't cheat on my spouse, so I'm good. You know, God loves me. And the fact of the matter is, um, the scriptures tell us, be sober-minded, be vigilant. Your enemy is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. And it's constantly telling us to test the spirits, be careful for the wolves in sheep's clothing. Like the Bible could not be more clear over and over and over again. It says that we um, we are prey for these hasatans. We are prey for these adversaries. And we're easy pickings because um, it's not even that they're smarter than we are necessarily, because, I mean, I think humans are pretty, you know, we're the pinnacle of creation. We're smarter than the animals. And, you know, it's not that we're stupid and they're smart. It's that we're kind of looking at one side of the diamond and we see one dimension of all these facets and they have the ability to turn the diamond and, and see it in 3D and they see all the facets. So they just have more information than we do. But another thing that we know about them, and this goes back to the book of Enoch, the book of Enoch 1, <clears throat> Azazel, who's the one that teaches man all of this, the secrets of heaven that we're supposed to keep secret, um, weaponry, forging weapons, weapons of war, warfare, warcraft, uh, herbs and the cutting of herbs and cosmetics, which was used for seduction, all these things. He, that's what Azazel was punished for. He was put in the abyss because he brought information to man that didn't belong to them and we see that too in the garden what did adam and eve do wrong they ate of a tree of knowledge okay so uh what what i like to try to always tell people is you know this the the watchers that were corrupt these watchers that came from the and were corrupt and came down and shared this information with us when Azazel was judged and he was put into the abyss, 
he was told, I think this is in chapter 16 of the book of Enoch, Azazel is told, you shared the secrets of heaven with men, but you didn't even share the good ones. You shared the worthless mysteries. So all of this information that was coming down from the fallen entities, it was it's not that it was not true. These were secrets of heaven. And what he taught us was true. We now have this information. We we can forge weapons. We know warfare. We know cosmetics. We know the herbs. We know we, we know all these things and it worked. It's true. It's not that it's not true. It, it's just that it wasn't helpful. And it didn't do anything to, you know, help us as a human race, you know, introduced in war and seduction didn't do anything to help us as a race. But what's interesting is that they were the worthless mysteries. And so the question that I would ask people to just ask themselves in their, in their own mind, if if you're going into the astral realm and you're talking to these beings and you're coming back and put your own emotions aside, put aside all your feelings, put aside the ego, put aside how it makes you feel like, you know, I'm chosen, I'm important, I've got a gift, I feel so good, the sex up there is great. Like put aside all of the ego and the emotions and just ask yourself the question, is what is being revealed to me helpful to the advancement of mankind and my spirituality, or is this a worthless mystery? And, you know, don't even go into the realms. Like if you're not a believer and you don't believe in the Bible, then matching up what they teach you with the Bible, um, it's not going to be of any value to you because you don't believe it anyway. And so I don't want to just train you in circular logic, but even outside of the context of scripture, um, when when we get information from another dimension, another world, another spirit, when when we're getting information that is good and true and pure and lovely and excellent and admirable, it is the to the benefit not just of us but to everyone around us. It's a collective, you know. Even the even the language of the scripture, the the authors in scripture never just kind of talk about themselves and what God did for them. It's always the whole tribe. It's the whole assembly. It's what God did for all of the people and all of the nations and Jesus and all of the world. And so it's a collective. We're all in this together. We're here to help each other. And so anytime you start getting into the realms of I'm learning this and I'm going to keep it a secret because it's all for me and I'm not going to let lower initiates and deplorables figure this out because this will give me power. Anytime it's about self and me, it's probably not of the the true spiritual kind because um, we, we are not supposed to be down here to um, just promote selfish success of ourselves and and our culture pushes that you know let's go on social media let's get a hundred thousand views let's get a million followers let's get the little youtube plaque on our wall and you know let's become celebrities let's become our little gods and you know it that's kind of the measure of whether or not we've succeeded in our current culture is how big of a following we have but that really isn't ultimately what brings us to any sense of peace with ourselves, with the people that we love, or with God, whoever you choose to believe that God is. But the, the fact of the matter is, if at the end of the day, you have a whole bunch of secret knowledge and powers and magic and abilities, and you're up in the astral, and you've got all this great stuff, at the end of the day, if you don't have peace, if you don't have joy, if you don't have functioning, loving relationships in your life, 
then that stuff is of no value. And so don't even think of it in terms of, is this bad? Is this evil? Think of it, is is this is this worthless? Because if it's worthless, then, you know, life is short. We got to seize the day and we got to, we got to chase after the things that are, are real. And if I spend my entire life, you know, diving for buried treasure at the end of my life, when I open that treasure chest, it better be full of something. Cause if it's what a waste of a life. If someone's experiencing sleep paralysis and they want it to stop, do you know how to stop it? <clears throat> yeah, I do. The whole, all of chapter six is about that. It's about how to get out of the astral matrix is the way that I put it. And, um, and a lot of people might not like the answer, Jeff, because it, it really requires a lot of self-examination and self-discipline and egolessness because a lot of the things that we are doing to invite and to give invitation to these beings, um, are quite frankly things that we don't maybe really want to give up doing, you know? And so uh, there are ways of getting rid of it. But here's one thing that I do want to caution people. There is probably over the last 30 years, there is, it's kind of out of the bag now. And I think it originated with Joe Jordan, who was a field investigator with MUFON in the 90s. And he's still associated with MUFON in the state of Florida, I believe. But he's also, he started up CE4. Uh, CE4 is uh, a UFO research group, but it is Christian-based. And they they exist to kind of uh, prove that this whole alien abduction thing is of a demonic spiritual nature. But with that said, in the 90s, Joe Jordan did a study. And he took 350 UFO experiencers, UFO abductee experiencers. <clears throat> and he interviewed them. And he put together this massive case study and he determined, he learned for the first time after interviewing, because he asked the same question that you just asked, how do, how do we get this to stop? And he found that a vast, a, a, a large enough percentage to be noteworthy in this group of 350 said to him that when they called out on the name of Jesus, it instantly stopped and bang, they were back in their car, back in their body, back in their bed. Now, there's a lot of nuances with this, Jeff, because Jesus has become a new age character in, in the last 20, 30 years as well. Uh, a lot of, of new age religions have embraced Jesus as one of the prophets. He's a spirit guide. People talk about going up into the second heaven and talking to Jesus. And now you've got a lot of people who are calling him Yeshua instead because they don't want to associate with that more Greek sounding Jesus. And, and so they're like, well, no, we're talking about the actual Hebrew guy, you know, Yeshua. And so now you're seeing a lot of Christians kind of transition from not calling him Jesus anymore because they want to separate from this more new age Jesus. And so there's a lot of nuances here. But what I really want to warn people about, and especially Christians, is now that that cat is out of the bag, um, a lot of people, I mean, I've even, I've, I've talked to atheists and Muslims who say, look, I don't believe in Jesus, but I call on his name when this happens because it stops it, you know. It doesn't always stop it. Like it's not this magic wand, right? But enough people have heard about this that people are seeing Jesus and it goes away. But what I think is um, maybe not thorough enough about that is <clears throat> a lot of people who experience sleep paralysis will tell you that the whole rest of the day, they still feel 
like they're looking over their shoulder. They they still kind of feel like something's attached to them. And sometimes people will say it lasts for several days. And um, and so there there's things, there's more things that need to be done than just say, Jesus, help me. And then it goes away because a lot of times you still feel that presence hovering. And a lot of times people will say that they feel it's still attached or they sense that it's still in the room or every time they go in that room, they still get that sense. And um, another thing, and this this is kind of where my research is going now, I was reading some stuff that Jim Wilhelmson and Timothy Alberino had written, years separated from one another. But they were talking about how if sleep paralysis is truly similar to a UFO abduction, that there might also be missing time and repressed memories involved with sleep paralysis. It would be very easy to have missing time with sleep paralysis because when you go to bed for several hours and you wake up, you know, you don't necessarily like what happened at the time, like you're asleep. You, so if, if there's missing time, you don't, you can't keep track of it. And so what, what Alvarino and Wilhelmson both speculate is there might be whole portions of your sleep paralysis episode that when you wake up, you don't remember. So even if you remember waking up in your room and seeing a shadow man or being afraid or seeing something on your chest or not being able to move and you're very, very scared and you wiggle your toes or you cry out to Jesus, whatever you do to wake yourself up. Um, a lot of us, when we talk about sleep paralysis, we tell people, I had this dream last night when I woke up, I couldn't move. And like, that's all we tell. It's like this little piece of the story. But if this is a true abduction scenario and we are up in that astral realm and we have no memory of it, then there is a lot more that we need to do to clear this problem up than just like, hey, here's the easy solution. Next time this happens, say the name of Jesus and it'll stop like that. Because the problem with that is, yeah, it might get you out of that initial bind. It might wake you up and it might, you know, get you out. Of, it might snap you out of that. But what it's not going to do is undo any contracts or covenants you made with spiritual beings in the second heaven, completely unaware and now washed from your memory. And again, I talk about that in chapter four. I talk about the uh, threshold covenants and how um, just like in the old days when someone would cross over your threshold, you were in a covenant with them, almost like a marriage. You were in a bond with them. If these things are coming over our threshold and there's things going on in the astral that we don't remember, uh, we need to undo those covenants. And the only way to undo those covenants is for the ownership of the home to change hands. And, you know, the home, not necessarily just being our bedroom, but what they're attacking, they're getting into our mind. They're hijacking the third eye, the pineal gland. They're hijacking our bodies, our souls, like the, the light body, whatever you want to call it. And so what do we need to do for this to change ownership? If if this, if, if I have given you permission, what do I do to undo these covenants? I have to, I have to get out of this covenant and I can do it by entering into a new covenant and letting the deed of this change hands. And this is where a Christian would say, that's the gospel, that's salvation. When you pray to receive Jesus into your heart, he becomes the new owner. And Paul even uses language about you die to the old self and you live anew. And, and this all goes into 
spiritual realm, astral covenant, threshold covenant, betrothal covenant sort of language. And where these entities are smarter than us and where they're getting a lot of us is a lot of this information has fallen out of the public vernacular. We don't understand a lot about these old ancient gods. And if you study the old ancient gods like Molech and and all these guys, um, Derek Gilbert writes extensively about who these old gods were and how they're manifesting today. He he writes great stuff. <clears throat> but anyway, um, just because it's fallen out of our vernacular and our understanding, these things that we're dealing with in the heavens, they're ancient. You know, they have been around for hundreds or thousands of years. They haven't forgotten and they're highly legalistic and we know from the garden of eden that all's fair in love and war and if these things can trick us into rebellion or trick us into a covenant it sticks and so they they hit below the belt and so if we are ignorant of what these covenants are but they're still in place and these things are still happening when we give invitation to these things it behooves us to turn off the Netflix and maybe do some deep dives into some old books like Henry Clay Trumbull, his Threshold Covenant book, uh, and, and try to dig, dig into what were these ancient gods that that the Old Testament is talking about, these, these gods that people were sacrificing their children to and who were, you know, worshiping and cutting themselves for. And if these things are eternal, like did, did all these things retire are they like in florida somewhere in a condo or are they still around are they still in in the, in the heavenly realms and are we still rubbing shoulders with these things are they tricksters and i'm not telling you um these are just questions i'm asking you that if you're being harassed by these things uh that um the way to get out of it it's not really a simple answer jeffrey because we can get entangled with these things. That's the bad news. We can get entangled with these things. And it's not always just as easy as a prayer. You know, uh, there's all these prayers online, like, you know, to undo all of like, if you had Masonic, you know, ancestors and things like that. And I'm not knocking these prayers and some of them are great, but it's not as easy as I'm going to repeat a prayer out loud. And all of these things are going to just fall away. It, it, you know, it says in the scripture to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's a, it's a very serious thing. And so um, it, it's not a real easy thing to get out of, but I can tell you that for the serious student um, who is ready to be freed from this, if you, if you, if you want freedom from this, it can be had. I can I can tell you that it can be had. And um, I one of the appendix in my book is a prayer mapping exercise where you have a journal and you just brainstorm and you try to look at all of the aspects of invitation that may, you know, like people will say like, oh, I played with the Ouija board or, you know, some, whatever. And then ways to kind of pray through that and cleanse cleanse your heart, cleanse your home. So that's another activity in the book too that, that helps. But chapter six is the... Uh, a lengthy chapter and it goes all into how to unwind yourself from this. So where do we find your new book? Is it on Amazon or a website? Yeah, thank you. It is not on Amazon actually. So the book is, they only come out at night. It is available exclusively on lamarzuli.net. 
And if it's easier for you to remember, you can go to vickijoyanderson.com. And if you go to my store and click on it, it'll take you straight to LA's site where you can order it. What else are you working on that you want us to know about? Oh, thanks. Um, right now, I I work with a guy named Tom Dunn. We have a channel over on YouTube called Through the Black 2. There's a two there because we got booted off the first time. <laughs> so Through the Black 2. And we explore all sorts of things uh, that have to do primarily with the occult, spiritual warfare, supernatural. It's through a biblical lens. We explore these things through a biblical lens. We have a show on Fridays. It's a little bit different. It's called Audiotopsy. And we go through music. And a lot of it is kind of like 80s, 90s kind of metal. Mm -hmm. But we we do some other stuff. And we we go through the music. And we just do kind of like a presup presuppositional analysis on the lyrics and anything interesting about the band and and whatnot and we're going to be at a conference in louisville kentucky next month october 14 through 16 both tom and i will be speaking um, on spiritual warfare i'll be talking about my book uh you can get tickets to that conference on here the watchman that's m-e-n.com are you working on any more books well <clears throat> la and i have we're we're in we're in discussions and I'm sort of unclear. I don't know what to do because there's so much more I want to say about sleep paralysis, but I don't want people to think that's the the, you know, the only thing I can write about. Uh, my initial draft of this book was massive. It was close to a thousand pages and it went off into a million different rabbit trails and things that didn't directly deal with sleep paralysis. But I was talking about a lot of fringe stuff in that book. And I probably have four or five books on the cutting room floor just from that. And so I think I might go back to that and and see maybe what is a good topic for the next book. But the next book is definitely coming. I also write for realdarknews.com. And I also, again, I write about a lot of fringy supernatural stuff on there. Uh, I also write for PP&S Report. That's Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural. That is an L.A. Marzulli magazine. You can sign up for that on his website. I think there is a small subscription fee for that, though. I think it's like 20 bucks a year or something like that. It's a monthly online magazine. I think it would be really cool if you would write a book that breaks down the Bible and explains the supernatural parts of it. That would be great. That would be great. Because you know what? With... um. With the influence on our culture of Greek stoicism, as well as the scientific method, we have really become a very sort of, you know, prove it to me. Like, it's funny, I'm in Missouri right now. It's the show me state. We've become the show me country, you know, prove it, back it up. Is this peer reviewed? What's your sources? You know, fact check. And um, unfortunately, that I think that mentality crept into the church long before it crept into the culture. And it is just always baffled me that a group of people that believe that virgins can give birth and every animal on the planet can you know, like find its way to a boat and survive a flood and <laughs> and people can raise from the dead that you you tell them something like sleep paralysis or alien abductions and they're like nope 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 can't do it where it really break down um in fact i'm always telling people you got to read the book of jubilees it's an extra biblical text it's it's just the whole book of genesis and a little bit of Exodus, but there's it's the director's cut. There's all sorts of things like added in the middle that makes it makes it makes sense. It's it's amazing, but there is so much supernatural stuff going on in all those stories in Genesis and Exodus. And you got to think about Moses and Joseph in particular. I mean, Moses and Joseph both educated in Pharaoh's courts. 
with all of that magic going on and, and the Book of the Dead and um, it talks about Joseph's divination cup and they didn't call it the Zodiac, but there's much talk in the scriptures about the Maseroth, which was the original sort of biblical version of reading the stars. And again, this is, it goes back to, it's not that you can't read the stars because Christians are like, it's evil, it's bad. It's, oh, it's, it's all astrology. The Maseroth was created by God. The stars, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. Genesis one says that the earth, uh, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars were created for the purpose of signs. It doesn't say light. It says it's for the purpose of signs. Like you can read the stars. But again, the difference is that the Maseroth is the unfolding of the plan of God and redemptive history. Whereas the astrology is like, what does this mean to me? It's about me. You know, it's the difference. It's just, but a lot of times the the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And a lot of these things that are actually biblical get thrown out because through time they those words were hijacked by the new age so then christians don't want to touch it but if you really back back your way into it um a lot of you know we don't use the words magic and divination in you know it's not christianese but if you you read the book of jubilees or you you read the bible with a fine tooth comb you can call it whatever you want that you can call it a miracle instead of you know um instead of magic or whatever you want. But the fact of the matter is there were supernatural nature, laws of nature, bending things going on all over in the scriptures. If someone wants to reach out to you and ask you questions, are you open to that? Absolutely. Yep. If you go to my website, vickijoyanderson.com, there is a contact uh, menu and you go there and you can just fill that out. And I'm sometimes a little behind on, on my emails, but I do always get back to everybody. All right, Vicki, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I just want everyone to know out there, if you are suffering with sleep paralysis, and especially for those, because I get letters like this all the time from the people that are harassed to the point of being exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, and physically to the end of the rope. There is hope. And don't ever think that there's not. There is a way out of this. And this life was designed for us to reach the full capacity of joy and love and peace. And it's all available to us. If you're not receiving that in the heaven that you're going to, then continue to pursue it elsewhere. If it's not there, it's not there. And you're not going to find it but it is available. So keep searching. Vicki, thank you for that message. And thank you again for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.